This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 19 of Healthy Critters Radio on the Horse Radio Network. Healthy Critters Radio is brought to you by Biostar US. Find them online at biostarus.com. On today's show, we talk with Lizzie Meyer, and we're going to talk about glyphosate in hay and, and how it can affect horses and what to do if your hay has been sprayed with glyphosate. And we're going to have our favorite breed of the show, which is going to be the Maine Coon. I'm going to talk in Critter Nutrition about getting started on a whole food diet. And in Coffee Clatch, we'll relate our favorite beverages with the dog breeds that are most likely to drink them. Tigger Montague. And this is Patty Perucci. And you're listening to Healthy Critters Radio on the Horse Radio Network. Patty P. Yes, ma'am. You have been off on an adventure this week. Um, I just got back from um, NAYRC. I had two mm-hmm. riders that qualified. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was awesome. Went to you know Colorado. Flew out there. Uh, I'm not really great at taking vacations um, or taking a lot of time off because I'm just so used to doing stuff. And so I left last Tuesday and my husband and Ray decided that they were going to drive up. I was like, this is great because Peter has always wanted to drive (laughs) up (laughs) the West Coast and he loved Colorado. He went to school there. So I, um, he begged me to come drive back with them. And I was like, okay, I've got to do this. So I talked to Tigger on the way home briefly yesterday. And I, um, so my darling husband, I said, okay, Pete, I'll take off Monday, but I got to be home Monday night. I've got an appointment first thing at seven o'clock on Tuesday. And he's like, oh, no problem. So we get in the car and we go over, um, I mean, we, we're, we go south and, inst- you know, obviously we had to go back sort of to the east to get back to Houston. And he's like, no, we're going to go over the, you know, the mountains and whatever. Okay, not a problem. Because I know that Peter knows I need to be back at some point early. <laughs> I already know where this is going. Yes. Oh, you, I don't think you know as bad as this guy. So I briefly t- chatted with Tigger yesterday because we were talking about different business stuff and what we're going to do with this and blah, blah, blah. And I realized um, as we we're going over these mountains this first day that there's a really good chance that Peter's taking his hours out of the way. We left at 12 o'clock on, on, on Sunday. So it wasn't really going to make a lot of sense. Long and short of the story is when we stopped, and let me tell you, it was worth every second. The, the views that I saw were so unbelievable. And Peter's tried to describe them to me. Unbelievable. We stopped in this little old town and I finally got reception again. And I looked at my Google (laughs) map thing and it said, uh, yes, you only have 15 hours and 58 minutes, (laughs) 15 hours and 58 minutes. And you'd already been in the car how long? At that point, probably, maybe, that was probably 10 hours because that was on Sunday. So we we got in the car and that was 10 hours. But I have to tell you, it was just unbelievable. It was just the things we saw. I mean, Tigger, I'm sure you've seen some of the 
pictures I posted on Facebook. They were just unbelievable. But I was, and, and I didn't, wasn't tired. I was just ready to, but when I stopped and realized that the next day, meaning yesterday, that we had 15, we had 16 hours. And the worst part of it was I just keep, I kept selling seeing 15 and I never saw the 58 minutes. (laughs) So I kept saying, Peter, it's 15, it's 15 hours. I can't believe this. How are we going to do this? And he finally looks down and he goes, uh, yeah, Patty, it's actually 16 hours. (laughs) Anyway, it took us 18 hours. Because no one, Google Maps never puts in, obviously, for stopping for gas. Yeah, 18 hours. I got home, 1 o'clock. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was a long long trip. But it it truly was worth it. It really was worth it, but I couldn't believe it. So when did you actually get back? 1 o'clock in the morning last night, this morning. And I will let you know, I only, there was only one horse that I didn't do. I did my normal day. When I call you, uh, Tiggs, in the morning and I'm heading to my first barn, I just didn't do that one. And I actually have one of her horses at my other barn. So, but I did all but one horse today. Wow. So at some point, if you guys hear snoring, I'm telling you, I'm probably asleep. <laughs> <laughs> if we hear, if we hear, yeah. Boom. That's her head hitting the desk. It's gone. Yeah. Yeah. But I will say this too. I was on such a high because I was the first time I've ever brought um, gone to the NYRC, and um, I it was I had a junior rider and a young rider, and both of them were really good anchors for the team. It was so exciting. It really was. I'm very excited about it because it's just you watch these kids get to go in these circumstances where it's a game changer because there's all these different regions and Canada's there and Mexico's there and um, and competing against each other and how all, and they, it's such a team sport and it, a lot of people are volunteering their times on top of the parents you know being there and being out of their normal circumstances but I'll tell you what it was so wonderful uh, to see old friends but also to see how all of these kids. Um, you know, Jan Ebling's son. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, didn't get through the jog. And they don't know, I don't know exactly what happened, but that kid stayed there and supported his team. Um, you know, every ride, that kid was there. It was just, it was awesome. It was really a good representation of how this should be. And then print, to imprint this on them while, you're, while they're young, I think is pretty brilliant. So it's pretty cool. I was so, so honored to be a so part of it. So somebody who's maybe not familiar with, explain what this competition is and where it was held. It was held in uh, Parker, Colorado. And um, it's all of the regions in, um, and actually it's for um, eventing, dressage, uh, jumping, and apparently they did raining, which they did not have this year. I don't understand why it's there some years and some not. But what you have to do is um, there's two teams. So my region is Region Nine, and there's a junior young rider team, which is equivalent to about a um, excuse me, a junior team, which is equivalent to about a third level, and then the young rider team, which is equivalent to about a pre St. George. And there's three phases. You have the team test which you compete obviously as a team and you have to get a score, um, to go forward to, uh, excuse me, that's not true. You do the team test, then you compete individually and individually you have to be within the top 18, which they just changed. Cause normally Tigger it's, um, it's like ours. It's like the top 12, the top 12. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think they actually do normally top 14 to go forward to the freestyle. And, um, so the team test in the two, in all three phases, they medal through bronze medal. So all of these regions come together and um, compete against each other. So my um, my young rider um, ended up being eighth, excuse me, ninth in in um, 
in North America. And my other one was eighth in North America. Um, and this is over, I mean, I, I think it was at least 30 rides. And these, both of these kids um, are just getting into this. It was just such a great experience. So, um, and, and there's, you know, the chef to keep is there and they have the lady that organizes it. And the barn was just full of great camaraderie and the other, you know, I was right across from region two, um, or excuse me, I guess it's reason is three Georgia. What is Georgia? Do you know Tigger? But it was like Karen three, Lee. three. Okay, but you know they were old buddies of mine from Florida, so all the kids would intermix, and it was just great. And all the things they do, they it just was just awesome. Um, and they have a golf cart parade, and um, Jana and Sue Stickle were there and taking pictures of that. It was just a great, great thing to do. And I was like I said, I was very honored to be a part of it. But to have two kids in it, I mean, both of my kids that tried out got in. Um, so it was cool. It's really cool. And they have to do the FEI jog, um, you know, and all of that. So it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. It's, it's like, it's like a, it's for a lot of these younger riders, it's their first time that they get to experience a competition with a yes. proper world-class atmosphere where you have the team mm-hmm. dynamic, yeah. you have the hustle and the bustle and rules out the yin-yang and yep. all kinds of unfamiliar procedures. So it's a really great training ground it is. for these riders to get mm-hmm. a taste of what it's going to be like when they if get they onto just, the international yep. stage. It's really, well, very cool. It's and, and they have the jog. Now we, um, and I'm, I don't think you have to do a CDI uh, to, to get in. Um, but we have a CDI in Houston. So both of my, actually you don't, I know you don't have to do the CDI because my, my young rider did not do the CDI this year, but my junior did. And it's, they had a little bit of a taste of what it was going to be like with, um, you know, you have to have your passport going through that whole experience. And then, you know, you have to, it's very regimented and, uh, the, the Houston CDI, they really try to do it top notch, um, a little bit different than the CDIs I've experienced before in Florida. Um, but like they, you know, Tigger, the way they set it up, um, similar to Devon, you know, um, you know, obviously they have, they have the barns and stuff, but they, they have um, times that you're allowed to graze. You can't just take your horse out and walk them. You have to do it, graze them at uh, a lot at times. And this is all unusual. So the kids have to learn to manage all this, plus the stress that goes along with it. And then, you know, one, you have to sign in and out to get in and out of the CDI barns and you can't, you know, you have to, if you have them on any medication that they normally have to have, you have to find out if it's legal and how long to take it off. I mean, there's so much logistical stuff that goes into it. It's, um, you know, it's like, it's like getting ready for the Olympics, same sort of thing. So it's really very great prep for all of it. Yeah. Pretty cool. There you go. Yeah. This episode's special guest segment is brought to you by Warhorse, naturally aggressive and fiercely kind. We're here with my very good friend, Lizzie Meyer. Lizzie and I have known each other for probably a decade or close to it. Um, Lizzie was trained as a vet tech. But I met her on the holistic uh, journey that she's been on and that I've been on. And we're sort of um, soul sisters uh, on the holistic walk. And um, I'm really happy to have her on Healthy Critters because Lizzie is sort of a canary in the coal mine for Biostar. Um, Her horses are um, of a 
variety of breeds, one, one or two Mustangs. And what's so interesting is that her horses really can tell her things that are going on that um, we may not be so clued into. They're very sensitive to food and environment. So Lizzie, uh, I don't know, is it a year or two ago, Lizzie, the, when, we, when we sort of started digging into glyphosate? And Lizzie mm. is the one that alerted me um, because oh, wow. her horses alerted her. So Lizzie, I'll let you, um, you know, tell that part of the story of what you, what the horses were telling you and what you discovered. Thank you for that introduction. Um, I, you know, it was really about September, August, September of 2015 when I purchased actually a year's worth of this beautiful, beautiful hay and started feeding it to my herd of six and noticed that my most sensitive Mustang, um, was 23 at the time, Actually, began, he began to break out in just these um, incredibly itchy, bald patches of skin just a, just a couple of weeks after starting to eat this hay. And it was the only change in his environment. He had had no medications, no new supplements. There was nothing else in his world that was different. So I immediately talked with the hay grower who had been doing it for his whole life and had never had a problem. Um, and he, you know, just he very kindly told me exactly what chemicals he had used on his crops and, you know, highlighted the fact that we were in a major drought year um, here in um, central Texas. And he... You know, he was willing to, of course, take the hay back, which was which was great. But it sent me on a major search to figure out what exactly was this particular horse, Elto, having a reaction to. And I noticed that taking away that hay and providing um, is actually an organic hay that I found um, just a, an hour away. Um, his symptoms decreased and just just weeks, and he was much less itchy and just seemed um, much brighter. But, you know, the journey was not even close to being over at that point. I just knew enough to say, okay, this part of the fire has been put out. But the problem was um, the glyphosate, the 2,4-D, the other chemical that they had used to spray it, and then, of course, the chemical fertilizers. I mean, it's it's not just one chemical, um, but I do believe, you know, the glyphosate was was a key ingredient, just based on kind of what what I had learned. And and and, and you then found out, and for every all our listeners, glyphosate is Roundup. I was just going to just say you should tell yeah. everybody what it is, right? It's, it's the active ingredient in Roundup, but it's. Um, very the way it works and my understanding not being a hay farmer is that uh farmers use glyphosate or you know all these different brand names that have glyphosate added on um as a combination product and typically they'll use that in the spring before the hay is actually um 
you know, grown up enough to actually cut it. And they believe that the residue has had enough time to make an exit from the plant at that point. Um, but the problem is that people don't realize what the glyphosate is doing to the soil um, microbiome, um, to the different minerals in the soil. There's, you know, there's a lot of speculation with, you know, what exactly is this compound capable of doing? Um, so it's, it, you know, it's not, it's not an easy, you know, I can't just point my finger to one particular chemical. I think that it was the most consistent chemical that this particular crop was sprayed with based on what the grower had talked to me about. So. Hmm. And, and yeah. here's, here's the, where it gets even more icky is that Monsanto who makes glyphosate has been telling farmers for the last couple of years you can use it as a drying agent. What? Yes. Yes, as a desiccant. So, got to look at your black oil, sunflower seeds, your oats. Um, a lot of the grains are actually... Um, I talked to the uh, Sunflower Council and figured out, because Elto was actually doing really well, and then I added some black oil, sunflower seeds, just he needed to eat something while everyone else was eating um, what they could eat. And he began to exhibit the same symptoms, intense itching, rubbing. I mean, he looked like a mangy dog with bleeding sores all over his body. He was laying down, chewing wounds into his legs. Oh, my gosh. Just, just seeping, just discharge. It was unbelievable the amount of pain this horse was in. And... All of this happened in like 24 hours of feeding him a couple cups of black oil sunflower seeds after being clear of the contaminated hay for months. And so in finding out that the sunflower growers typically spray glyphosate right before harvest to, they want to defoliate the flower so that the seeds are ripe, they're dry, and that the 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 fiber material, the leaves and the stalk, doesn't um, gum up the combine, basically. That's why they use it. And so you get a uniform harvest, basically. The other alternative is to wait until it freezes, which a lot of the old-timey farmers will actually do that because they don't want to use this chemical. Um, but anyway, so without testing the sunflower seeds and just my own observation, I believe that's what was happening all over again. And oh, that set us back big time. We're now, was this the same horse, Lizzie, or was this yeah. a different yeah. horse? Oh, same bless horse. his heart. Same horse. And, you know, I kind of had to go around this in my mind. You know, why, why just this one horse? They're all eating the same hay. And I don't have an answer for that, but just knowing this particular horse, he was so sensitive to drugs. He's, he's just sensitive mm. to everything. Um. And then you remove the cause and the horse gets better. So that's kind of how I'm doing the math on this. Wow. So, Lizzie, what are you doing um, for your herd in terms of hay and, and you know, the glyphosate uh, residue and contamination of, you know, about 50 different crops that are grown? Right. 
Well, um, that's a really good question because it has been an adventure just trying to figure this out because I thought, you know, if I could just avoid the glyphosate and the T4D and the major chemicals that are typically used, that I would feel better about feeding it to this whole herd. Um, but it turns out there's more to it than that. Uh, you have to look into hay conditioners, um, things that they're basically like a hay preservative so that the hay doesn't mold. You know, if they're in a humid mm. area of cutting hay, they want to they want to preserve their crops because sure. it's a huge value crop. Um, so you have to look for for preservatives. And so I talked to all kinds of hay growers all over the country who educated me on how do you determine if you have a hay preservative, which, you know, a simple test this one farmer taught me was just you hold the hay and you just you kind of crumble it in your hands kind of with a little energy, and the hay should, ideally, it should kind of fall apart, and you shouldn't feel like you have lotion on your hands at the end of this. Hmm. If it, if, and, and he said typically this happens more on the East Coast um, because it's high humidity and it's, it's the type of grass that's high moisture. And Anyway, so, so I thought it was just the glyphosate and these other chemicals, but looking at the fertilizers, how people have taken care of the soil that they're growing the hay in, it became completely overwhelming for me. Mm. So I met with um, a grass-fed beef rancher locally who has studied the soil microbiome and has used things like compost tea and, um, you know, specific minerals for his specific soil. And he's done all kinds of good soil practices to grow his hay. And, you know, after talking with him, I felt like that I could actually buy hay from him knowing that it's not this gorgeous, you know, quote, horse hay that's glowing green and, you know, soft and beautiful and whatever. It's, it's you know, it's a it's kind of a wild grass um naturalized um, type of Bermuda here. And, you know, through his education, um, I learned about, you know, the value of feeding a hay like that versus one that I would have normally judged as beautiful horse hay. Mm. And then I started, I started kind of wondering a little deeper into this because in my horse care, you know, education business, you know, hay is what, 95% of what mm. we feed our horses. Yeah. It's, it's free choice. I mean, they're getting a ton of hay a day. So if it's their biggest source of contamination, you know, what can we do? And so I, I felt like not everyone's going to be able to find the local resources to find clean hay like yeah. that. Yeah. So what could I tell these people? And I decided just to make them aware of the situation as far as asking the grower or the feed store or the dealer what was sprayed on this hay. And most people will say, well, I, you know, it's a dealer or it's a store. I don't, I don't know. They've changed their suppliers. But my advice is to be relentless about that because if growers become aware that the consumer is asking questions and they really want to know and they're not going to buy hay that's been heavily sprayed with all these chemicals, 
the market will shift. Yeah, and then that's a good point. I, I, yeah, and it's it's a real pain. I mean, honestly, it really is. But the the other thing to do, you know, really helped me when I was I hadn't discovered this particular hay farmer yet. I went on Craigslist, and there there was a surprising number of organic horse mm-hmm. hay dealers. Oh wow. And they're small farmers, but it's it's sort of like, you know, you use your best judgment. You go, you check it out, you buy some sample bales. Um, you know, you, you, the standard is the same, but it's not going to be this gorgeous, fancy hay that we're used to seeing sometimes. Right. So just, you know, making them aware of that and starting the process of asking those questions rather than just turning a blind eye seems to be helpful. Um the other thing would be realizing that in a boarding situation, although you can ask the questions, you really don't have control over the hay. And yeah. in a lot of places that don't have pasture, you're, you know, it, it's, it's, people become very grateful for even having good hay that yep. happens to be free choice. So then mm-hmm. what? And so my answer to those people is, to really look at your minerals um, that your horse is getting and evaluate um, if they're in a whole food form or not, meaning are they absorbable or are they not? Uh-huh. Because glyphosate is going to tie up so many yep. of the major minerals. And, and these horses, you know, if the minerals are tied up, that means they're not available. So you could be feeding, yeah. you know, what you think is the best. But it's not being absorbed. And yeah, if you yeah. have mineral, mineral deficiencies, you've got immune issues, you've got gut issues, endocrine issues, behavior issues. I mean, you name it. Minerals are key. Um, the other thing would be super green foods. I mean, I went through an entire, oh, my gosh, several months of blood cleansing herbs for this horse. And, and I, I treated the whole herd Um with herbs just to deal with kidney, liver, gut, um, because just because they didn't have symptoms didn't mean that they weren't being affected. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so it's a big process. And and I think, you know, for Elto, it helped a lot. Chlorophyll and, um, I'm sorry, chlorella and spirulina helped a lot kind of dealing with, the minerals and also blood cleansing. Um, I used quite a bit of Optimum at the time, and that was very helpful as a multivitamin mineral and just, you know, sprouted real food. Um, I did countless different smoothies just to boost them. I mean, it's it, I can't even believe how long this has gone on. I really can't. I mean, he's this horse's immune system is still down. It's, this is a huge project. So I would hope that other people could learn from this and start asking those questions early on, not only of the hay growers, but considering what process feed the horse is getting and, and doing some research. You know, are these likely to be contaminated? Um, because if, if the horse is getting low doses of it, we don't really know what effects it has. So if you can avoid it, I would, I would certainly. Well, one thing we do know, I mean, the, we know it affects the immune system. We know it affects the liver and the kidneys in mammals. 
I mean, that, I think there's enough studies, you know, out of Europe um, that that has made that pretty clear. Right. Um, we also know um, on the human side that it opens the tight junctions in the gut. And when those tight junctions stay open, it allows the toxins into the bloodstream constantly. Right. And, you know, it was interesting. Um, I didn't notice this right away, but I would say um, last spring, early summer, I noticed that Alto had all the symptoms of dysbiosis or leaky gut, which is from exactly what you're Mm -hmm. saying. Tight junctions are open. And then when you have that, you end up with these incredible allergies. And it could be environmental allergies, food allergies, it doesn't matter, bug allergies, yep. um, allergies to anything, any sort of protein that's, you know, leaking from the gut. So mm. it's, it's very, very hard to kind of get a grip on um, these super allergic courses because it's it's coming from the inside out and it takes yep. a lot of time. Bingo. Yep. Yeah. And you can't, and the hardest part is you can't suppress the itching that, you know, all this right. comfort. You can manage it, but the body is trying, my understanding is that the body is trying to externalize toxins, disease, etc. So if you were to just, you know, put some cortisone on that and, you know, just give them a, you know, steroid shot, you mm. know, as many histamines quit itching. Um, it's going to, it's going to drive the disease or the toxin deeper into the body. Yeah. So it's this delicate dance of what can I do so that his quality of life is good, but we're still addressing the underlying toxicity, the gut health and the immune system. Wow. Well, let me just just say that um, for all our listeners, if you want to talk to Lizzie in more depth, um, you can contact her through her website, uh, which is wholehorseconsulting.com. And she has started um, these wonderful classes called Holistic Animal First Aid Classes. They're for horses and for dogs. And Lizzie, I'll let you talk a little bit about that because this kind of education is so helpful for all of us who live with critters. Yeah, thank you. Um, So the holistic first aid education classes kind of came about um, kind of using my vet tech, you know, knowledge and then emergency medicine experience and then um, love of all things holistic and you know, my passion for education for animal owners. And so what I do is a hands-on class. This is not something that I offer online. This is at your place or here at my ranch. And it's a small group format. And we actually take vital signs. We learn different bandaging techniques, how to manage certain emergencies, how to actually build your own customized first aid kit with essential oils, herbs, homeopathic remedies, and different resource books, and how to keep your cool in an emergency and know how to talk with your vet so that you're ensuring that your animal gets the very best care and you are able to um, objectively and calmly 
be with your animal through a difficult situation. You know, Patty, you should have her come to your barn. Well, I mean, I was just going to ask, um, how, where are you? You're in central Texas? Yes, I'm actually in Comfort, Texas, which is about 45 minutes outside of San Antonio. Um, okay, and I actually know where that is because I just went through all of Texas yesterday. <laughs> or actually, I guess part of that was today. I, I just drove drove back from Colorado, so it was <clears throat> a long trip. Um, oh. Yeah, that that's um, so neat. That's so neat. Um, I, I guess I didn't realize you were that close. Because um, I'm in, I'm down in um, Houston, um, in the Richmond area now. Okay. okay. Um, but you also do Great. clinics in San Antonio. And I do so. clinics in San Antonio. Oh yeah, we could definitely coordinate something. Well, we actually, we at least should actually meet in person. Because <laughs> yeah, it's 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 been it's been a, a long time that we've never met. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would love that. I would love it too. So if you would like more information um, about um, Lizzie and talk to her about your horse um, or dog, go to wholehorseconsulting.com. Her cell phone number will be on um, our website for this episode, and you can contact her that way as well. So Lizzie, thank you so much. You know I I share your passion for, for health for the animals. And that we really have to be incredibly mindful about not only what we're feeding, but how it was grown and, and um, that that's becoming more and more critical to their health. It is. It is. Well, I appreciate y'all being so interested in this topic. I know it's, it's kind of a big one. But yeah, it is a big one. I'll take a small step and make a difference. Exactly. Okay, thanks, Lizzie. Thank thanks, Lizzie. It was okay. nice, nice talking. Bye bye. Bye bye. We know that cleaners and products we use have a great impact on the well-being of our families, our animals, our farms, and the earth. Warhorse works to offer our customers naturally aggressive and fiercely kind cleaners that provide effectiveness, versatility, and value. And Warhorse does this with special combinations of simple, humble, but extraordinary plant oils that have no pesticides, no metals, no glyphosate, no petroleum, no sulfate ingredients, and no genetically modified organisms. Warhorse's equine pet and people soaps use an exclusive raw sunflower oil that retains its waxes, lecithin, and vitamin E. And add some skin-loving avocado, coconut almond, and dead sea minerals, and you've got a buffet of healthy benefits for your farm family. All Warhorse cleaners are naturally aggressive on dirt and grime and fiercely kind to the most sensitive skin, even our pure gold and multi-purpose cleaners. So go ahead, get in the mud and get dirty. Warhorse has got your clean, a Warhorse kind of clean. Warhorse products are available at Biostar US. You can find them online at biostarus.com or call us direct 1 800 686 
Hello. Hedy. Hi, Hedwig. Hello. Hello, hello. Thank goodness you have called me. <laughs> Why? <laughs> what were you doing? Well, I've had quite a difficult few days as my servant has the flu, and oh. so my care has been significantly <laughs> subpar. Oh, that's oh, dear. Oh, I hope your servant's okay. <laughs> You're worried about the staff? I was. Uh, you, you, I, yes. I, yes, I was, but I didn't mean it. <laughs> I'm sure that at the moment that you asked that, you were simply acting from a humanitarian impulse, but. Mm-hmm. I am a bored Pomeranian, and there's way more dangerous than the flu. You're right. My apologies. It was my stupid upbringing. (laughs) She hasn't had cheese in probably 24 hours. That's what it sounded. Oh, I can't even imagine. I can only imagine her servant doesn't even want to think of cheese. (laughs) The servant is lazy and will barely move from the couch without whining excessively. Yeah. You've never had the flu, have you, Hedwig? (laughs) Oh, let's just cast our mind back to when I got violently ill in Florida and no one got to sleep for days. Yeah, I guess that's very similar to, it's the chocolate flu. Yes. This one is involves more lethargy and paleness and shaking with cold than my version, which just involves projectile vomiting. Right. Very descriptive for a puppy. So, Jennifer has a question for you, Hetty. How nice for her. It is, I, am, I am privileged, Hedwig. Thank you for taking my question. Uh, we, we need to know, because this is an important question for uh, the humans who are the dogs servants around the world. We need to know, where do you stand on bathing? Because uh, some of us don't think that it's fair that some dogs have a proper bathhouse and spa to go to for their bathing needs and others through no fault of their own have to bath in a public bath also known as a wash rack and i want to know where you stand on that topic as far back as possible from the hideous water no doubt (laughs) Uh okay there you go for example today my sister known as the pope for her extraordinary good nature Hmm had a small adventure with some beer poo and was scooped up and put in the sink and bathed with dish detergent. Oh. Yeah. So I narrowly escaped what could only be described as a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> and, did, and, and, your, and your sister is um, deer poop free? No? Well, she's in some sort of PTSD shock, but... <laughs> doesn't smell as good as she did before. She smells like dish detergent. So are you are you saying, Hedwig, that you are against all human-assisted bathing? I'm against bathing in any form. Interesting. And grooming. I, I commend you for taking a stand on that. That's not easy. You're very clear, too. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any question as to where she stands on this. Yeah. No, this there, there's no gray matter. No, no, it's very... <laughs> Yes, that was clever, Tigger. I'm just reminding you, you're going to get to babysit again in Florida, and I have the power to make your life difficult. Yes, I know you're doing. I'm scared. Yeah. 
As well you might be. Just consider that when making further digs at my intelligence level, why don't you? <laughs> well, Hedwig, we we so appreciate you stopping by this afternoon to uh, give, despite, us, give us despite your the opinion. chaos in your yeah, life. Despite, oh, yes. despite the, yeah. the, the tremendous stress you're under. Yes, bless her heart. She's a giver. Yeah, I She's a giver. everything I can. Purple yeah. heart. Purple yeah. heart right here. Right there. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. My Hedwig. sister is still wet. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for the breed of the show. So, Tigger, we're going to talk Maine Coon cats. <laughs> I knew she was going to do that, Jennifer. I set her up for it, even yeah. though I told her not to. So I just want to let you know, I had decided that I wanted to do cats because I had a lot of time to think about it. <laughs> yeah, but you weren't going to do Maine Coon. No, I wasn't. But Tick, Tigger, um, Tigger had a little um, uh, hissy fit, and she wanted me to do Maine Coon. Uh-huh. So, I, and actually, I will tell you what a um, Kelly has a Maine Coon. They really are great cats. But that's the only time I've ever dealt one with one. Do you have one, Tigger? He's no longer living. Okay. Um, well, I enjoyed learning about this cat, um, because obviously they're a big cat. They're one of the largest. In fact, um, one of the, um, largest, where's my notes on this? The, uh, the world record, the longest cat was, his name was Stewie. And uh, 2013 was a Maine Coon. And I um, I couldn't figure out the exact dimensions, but they showed a picture of this cat. It was like the the, the length of this guy's torso. Um, but, of course, it was just laying there. Um, so, apparently, they are enormously gentle giants, which is one of their, yeah. their tag names. Um, they um, obviously are quite large. They, they're native to Maine. And the thing that I found very interesting, so they're a big cat. They generally are tabby um, tabbies. I guess there can be some darker um, versions of them. And there's a couple colors that aren't considered um, appropriate for the breed. I think they accept a lot of things, but the biggest no-no is they don't want blue eyes. So I was like, okay, so I'm going to find out the history of this cat because it's very dog-like. They follow you around and they yep. do the yowling, which you were doing quite nicely. <laughs> And they're, they're, like I said, they're the, the, the cat that will follow you around. Like, you know, the dogs do, this is the cat that will follow you around, but was so interesting. So I wanted to find out what a lot of the history was. And it's so funny because the history is, is there's a lot of speculation on what is truly correct. So I found two different versions of, um, the possibilities of, you know, where they actually descended from. I think everybody agrees they came from Maine, but they're, um, there was an, a, a fisherman that used to go out on his jaunts and he would have these feral cats. And when he would go and, um, you know, dock at different places, some of the cats would get off and breed with other cats. And, and he, um, his name, um, or, um, they, they are, one of the theories is that these cats, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself because this other one is bizarre, but they, they feel that these cats um, would breed with larger feral cats and they would, and the Maine Coon cat was sort of developed from that. But the thing that's so interesting is one of these versions of what they say, that's so funny, is they, they think that they, they've descended from raccoons. Oh, get out of here. I'm not kidding. This was That's in. Why this was I in, love raccoons. I know. And it's so. It's a different species. I know. It's it a is, raccoon. It is a ridiculous, 
ridiculous thing. But yes, they say that um, that they're a descendant of raccoons and cats, feral cats and raccoons have bred. And then another version of what they say this is, is that they're also um, a version of a bobcat. Um, which is because bobcats, if you think about it, if you look at a picture of a bobcat and some Maine Coons, they're very, they've got a lot of similar markings. So just kind of, I just, I just thought it was so, just such an interesting um, <laughs> history. So they really don't know where it's all come from, but they just know that they originally came from Maine. Um, uh, let's see, what else did they say that was very interesting? So the sixth toe. You Tigger, you did your cat yes. toe? Yes. So they so some some people say I had kind of conflicting reports on which is which, but some people say that most of them over over like eighty percent of them have the sixth toe, but not all of them have it. Now that is where the history gets kind of weird again because some who say that they're descendants of bobcats or raccoons are the ones that say that they have the sixth toe. The other people that feel that they came from this fisherman named Cappy, um, who let them breed on his boats and got off on different ports, say that those are the ones that don't have the toes. Again, they, no one really seems to have a very direct thing as to what, you know, was the true story. But um, so with along with being a very large um, cat, obviously there are some health health concerns and I don't think I'm going to say this correctly, but one is um, it's a different, it's a heart condition, hypertonic cardiomyopathy. Does that make any sense? Tigger, have you ever heard of that? It does. Um, yeah. So um, spinal muscle atrophy, I guess, because of the length of the cat. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, hip, hip, hip dysplasia. But again, Overall, it really is a very healthy cat because I know with every breed, there's always something that can kind of be an issue. Um, but, you know, they it sounds like they are great cats and adapt. And I think they're relatively easygoing cats in the sense like you can have them as an apartment cat or it can be a cat that goes inside and outside. But very adaptable cat gets along with children, gets along with other dogs, and gets along with other cats. So um, I, if... I would be a good cat to start with. It'd be a great cat to start with. There you go. Well, I just have to say that I had a Maine Coon cat, and his name was Hobie Cat. Hobie Cat. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the coolest cat that I ever had the privilege to live with. And one of the reasons he was so cool was they are incredibly intelligent I mean, even, yes. I mean, cats are intelligent, but Maine Coons are on a different level. And if you go for a walk, the Maine Coon comes. If you go for a trail ride, the Maine Coon comes. Isn't that funny? It, 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 was, it was just unbelievable. And Hobie, for some reason, he didn't really like to be on the ground very much. He liked to be, you know, on fence boards, walking along fence lines. Isn't that funny? And when I lived in Princeton, New Jersey, I lived in in Princeton and I lived in one of these old townhouses that was built at the turn of the century and you know all the backyards are like little fenced mm-hmm. in you know he would travel around the neighborhood <laughs> just oh like my going, gosh that is so oh my and we would just leave the window open and, and that's how he would go out. in and out at night yeah they just they just seem oh, you know so um cool. Kelly inherited one um and uh he is an indoor cat but again Real, real extraordinarily friendly, very, I mean, this sounds stupid, but I like my cats to be somewhat dog-like, just in the sense that they'll come when you call them, because we all know cats don't do that. Um, 
but um, her cat's very much the same way. He'll follow her around, um, d- does the just the most adorable things, and big, just a big cat. I mean, you know, the males can get up to 17 pounds, and I'm sure that's kind of an average. I'm sure they can go above that. And the females aren't far behind that. I mean, that's a big cat. It's a very big cat. Yeah, it's a very big it's, cat. It's, at least Hobie was, he had to be like 19 or 20 pounds. Wow. Wow. Oh, but I have Sumo, who's just a mix who showed up, who's 24. Oh, my gosh. That's, I mean, that's big oh, for you a cat. Have, yeah, and when you pick him up, it's like, you know, you have your, your you want to work out? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah you gotta lift it up, yeah. That is so funny. My favorite part about cat, Maine Coon cats is I'm a, I love long-haired kitties, mm-hmm. and I love Maine Coons because they have normal-shaped faces. Yes. I don't, yeah. like the, I don't like flat-faced kitties. I don't like flat-faced mm-hmm. no, doggies I don't either. either. But I love the fact that it's a giant long-haired cat with a with a nice pointy nose. Well, and the great pit- tails. Excellent. Yeah. Tails. Excellent and they tails. Uh, yeah. That's the other thing too is they just say they're very fluffy. And I guess there is um, there's kind of two different types of coats. They can be the really long, like kind of they could, they said fluffy <laughs> flowing coat. Um, but they can be, and they're dense, they're kind of a dense coat, and it can be, some can be really long-haired, and some can be shorter-haired. Not like short, not domestic short. Yeah. Like a medium, yeah. yeah. So, they're cool. I think they're pretty cool cats. Pretty cool cats. Yeah, pretty cool cats. Yeah. So, we've arrived at Critter Nutrition, and... This episode, I'm going to talk about getting started in the whole food diet. It can seem daunting to disconnect ourselves from commercial horse feeds and plunge into the world of the whole food diet. It was daunting for me too. I realized that the cornerstone of human nutrition, fiber, protein, fat, and carbohydrates, vitamins, and minerals, is the same for horses. The amounts and ratios are different are different, but the foundation is the same. Fiber, protein, fats, carbohydrates, vitamins, and minerals. No matter what the feed companies tell us, equine nutrition is not rocket science. There is a history of millions of years of equines living on the earth and eating what was available. According to the American Museum of Natural History, 55 million years ago, the first members of the horse family, Eohippus, were dog-sized, no bigger than a modern fox, scampering through the forests that covered North America. They were forest browsers, nibbling on leaves, fruits, and berries. When climate conditions allowed grasslands to expand about 33 million years ago, the cooler weather displaced the fruity plants and leafy, and leafy shrubs took hold. Horses' teeth became sharper in order to deal with the new diet. As grassland replaced the cool forests approximately 18 million years ago, horses had to develop longer teeth to deal with the new high silica content of the grasses. Four or five million years ago, the horses were completely adapted to grasslands. Many migrated and expanded from North America across the Eurasian landmass. The last ice age brought about the extinction of the horse in North America. Luckily, the descendants of horses that crossed the Eurasian land bridge would return when Spain, England, and France brought horses to the New World. As you can see from this brief 
timeline, evolutionary changes such as teeth take millions of years. As horses evolved with longer limbs and accelerated locomotion to live on the grassland, as their teeth got longer, their GI tracts evolved into efficient fermentation machines to digest and utilize the grasses. They have evolved to eat 20 hours a day. Their saliva is activated by chewing forage and hay that provides a bicarbonate for the gut. Grasses and hays not only provide fiber, but also provide protein, fat, carbohydrates, and some vitamins and minerals, the cornerstones of equine nutrition. This is why the whole food diet is focused on components such as alfalfa pellets and timothy pellets. These forage foods, in addition to hay and grass, are essential for equines. It is what they evolved to eat for the last 18 million years. We don't think of grass as having a fat content, but grasses typically provide the essential fatty acid omega-3. Hay also provides omega-3, but storage, conditions of growing the hay, herbicide applications, how the hay was dried, can reduce omega-3 content. Fat is not a new phenomenon in the equine diet. Forages and hays provide protein in various amounts depending on the kind of grass, orchard, timothy, fescue, bermuda, native grasses, etc., and the soil and and growing conditions. Alfalfa is a member of the pea family and was first cultivated in ancient Persia. It was introduced to Greece in 490 BC when the Persians invaded Greek territory. According to the 4th century book Opus Agriculturae by the Roman writer Palladius, quote, a jugarum, which is a Roman unit of measurement of approximately 0.623 of an acre, a jugarum of alfalfa is abundantly sufficient for three horses all the year, end quote. In the 16th century, Spanish colonizers introduced alfalfa to the Americas as fodder for their horses. According to Wikipedia, quote, the Spanish were aware that alfalfa is better than grass as food for working horses because the horses had more energy, end quote. Keep in mind, these Spanish horses were being ridden 8 to 10 hours a day, so their energy requirements were significantly higher than the modern-day sport or performance horse. Horses that were used for farming, transportation, and warfare had much higher energy needs than horses today. Oats, corn, and barley became foods for horses, particularly in Europe, because of the availability of these grains and the caloric energy needs of those horses. My tips on feeding whole food. One, take a deep breath. Two, hay, forage, and water are the most important foods for horses. Three, feed according to the energy needs of your horse. Most horses get plenty of carbohydrate energy from hay and grass and may not need the addition of grains to meet their energy needs. Remember, carbohydrate energy is quick burn energy, while fat energy is long burn energy. Number four, the quality of fat sources matter. Highly processed oils like corn, soy, rice, and vegetable are solvent extracted with the neurotoxin hexane. Seek quality fat sources like coconut meal or unrefined coconut oil, GMO-free rice bran, cold-pressed hemp seed oil, or cold-pressed camelina oil. Horses that are easy keepers 
or have metabolic imbalances do best on medium chain fat sources like coconut rather than long chain fat sources like rice bran. Five, the whole food diet is incredibly flexible because it, because it is component feeding. This allows you the freedom to feed your horse as an individual. With commercial complete feeds, if you don't feed according to the manufacturer's specifications, your horse is only getting a diluted portion of important nutrients. Six, don't hesitate to use your intuition. It's one of the ways horses communicates, communicates with us. Seven, if you need assistance or a little reassurance, by all means, contact us via Star US. 1-800-686-9544. Coffee clutch! <laughs> You're just a singing little bunny today. I know. Would you like me to bark? You, you can. Well, you're going you're gonna to probably end up barking when we go through um, these different uh, dogs. Yeah, so we're, we're talking about um, if... What breed of dog would be, if, they, if it was human, would drink coffee or red wine or beer? Right. So, um, Patty, you want to start off? What, well, would, what, what breed of or breeds of dog day. would would be coffee drinkers? The city. Oh, do you want to start with coffee? Because of course, I went right to wine. <laughs> I, I started with coffee. <laughs> okay. Well, um, you know, it, I I made a couple different lists and. Um, at first I was like, I was like, what, like what dogs shouldn't drink coffee? <laughs> and of course the I first, started there too. And then I did, realized that's no, not, because it, exactly. Right. So, um, but I thought because, and this is, I don't know why I think this is so funny, but I thought the type of dog that would drink coffee would be <laughs> a greyhound because they're always hanging out. They always seem so chill. They always seem so relaxed. And and I never knew this about greyhounds until we did um, the greyhound, you know, until I learned more about greyhounds. So I thought a greyhound would be the type of dog that could just hang out and chill and drink a little coffee, like on a really, a really elegant, like. <laughs> I had a totally different take on this. You did. Oh no. Oh no, no, no. Okay, great. What did you, why? What did you say? Border Collies, Australian Shepherds. See, that's okay. That, that's what I did originally because I was like, Jack Russell, you know, they need the more energy. But I, okay. Okay. That's so funny. Okay. What did you say, Jennifer? I picked the Airedale Terrier. Oh. But he would be drinking espresso. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. And he would say it just that way when somebody said, Do you want some coffee? And he would say, Espresso, please. Thank espresso. you very much. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Oh, what so breeds wouldn't be drinking coffee? Um, I Jack Russell, <laughs> <laughs> a Jack Russell, or and I, I and I was also thinking like a multi poo. You know, the, <coughs> a golden the, retriever would never drink coffee. Right. Well, I had Frenchies and Cavalier King Charles Spaniels that wouldn't drink coffee. No, because a I King was Charles Spaniel is going to have to have tea. Yes, exactly. Yes, good point. And yeah, a Frenchie excellent. would probably be drinking iced tea. Good. Yes. Arnold Palmer. Yes. Arnold, Arnold Palmer. Palmer. Oh, gosh, that's funny. Yeah. Yes. Okay, that's funny. Well, I also just, so this one, of course, won't make sense because the this red is, wine. Yeah. No, the other coffee one I had was a Great Dane. Because <laughs> I was like, I was well, thinking, actually, that does make sense. Yes, okay. and he would get the big gulp size one from the Cookie Mart. <laughs> yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Or that could be donuts. donuts. Yeah. There, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I just thought great day. Excellent. <laughs> what did you have for, for red wine? Um, at red wine, I had a Frenchie. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I just thought that was too appropriate because I can so see my little, little French let's drinking some red wine. I cannot. You could not? Not see them drinking red wine. No, they um, actually they would knock it over, but that's a whole other story. And they couldn't get it down because they've got smushed faces. But I just thought they were French. They should drink wine. Ah, well, I had ah. the standard poodle, oh, the Italian yes. greyhound, the Afghan, the Bichon, and the Labradoodle. Oh, a Labradoodle! The Labradoodle would be drinking the kind that comes in a box. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I haven't thought about bucks. Because I was thinking standard poodles very you know arrogant and yes. yeah. aloof and you know, yeah. I could see him or her, you know, lifting her little her crystal glass and he would have foo-foo wine, the kind that has a really pretty label and a, and a, and a nice and, and, and a has, big price tag. And a big <laughs> price tag and ads in cooking magazines. Ah. He didn't know anything about wine, but he bought the one that looked really expensive. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, and I also see the Italian Greyhound being very, you know, sort of sophisticated and. And this is all red. Afghan, this is red know? wine, or is this white wine? This is red wine. Okay. Because I was <laughs> going to say because I. And the see, I had Bichon. I had Bichon too, but I had Bichon for white wine. Oh, I didn't even do white wine. What did you well, have, Jennifer, for red wine? Red wine. I had the Scottish Deerhound. <laughs> oh that's good and he, and he would have a, he, he would have a variety of wine that was colored sort of red he didn't have any idea what it was but it was colored sort of red and he okay. always had a lot on hand so he could say, share it with his friends hmm. okay. yeah. see that's nice yeah that's nice and what breeds would not be red wine drinkers oh, would not <laughs> would not oh let's see here I had Great Dane, oh, Irish Setter, and Neapolitan Mastiff. <laughs> oh yeah, Neapolitan definitely would never touch wine. No, 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 no. A Beagle would not drink wine. Oh, you're right. A Beagle would not. No. I had the American Bulldog. Oh yes, yeah, for and sure. A Rot- and a Rottweiler. <laughs> yeah. I just don't see that happening. A German Shepherd would not drink wine. He would drink no. sake. Sake. Yes. Yeah. He'd do he, drive-by sake. Yeah, yeah he, would, he would do sake, and he would do sake shots. Yes. Because and a Doberman just, would do tequila. And a Doberman oh, yeah. would do tequila. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So what did you have for beer, Patty P? Um, <clears throat> I have the Boxer, and the Boxer would definitely drink Bud Light. And I have a German Pincher that would definitely drink Heineken. What did you have, Jennifer? I had the Basset Hound. Oh, I, you know, that's funny. I thought and he's going to drink, do, he's going to drink Dos Equis. Dos Equis. Yes. All right. Tay, I have the Bloodhound. Oh. The Ooh. German Shepherd, the and- Golden Retriever, the Labradors, <laughs> Corgis, Pitbulls, and Newfoundland. <laughs> and Newfoundland. Oh, I can see Newfoundlands doing beer. That's a good one. You like Guinness. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually was also a thinking Anatoly. Anatolian Shepherds. Um, but I didn't have a different, I just, I thought that they're, um, they do drink Sam Adams, Sam Adams. Yeah. And a bloodhound would just sort of drink whatever came by, you know, Coors or 
Bud would, Light. Or- he would just he would just gnaw through the keg and lick it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that'd be a healer. Yeah, <laughs> just gnaw right through the keg. Yeah. <laughs> and and who did you guys have for a breed that would not be a beer drinker? Not be a beer drinker. I went back to like a multi t- multi poo, a Yorkshire Terrier, a Bichon, um, a Pekingese. <laughs> you and I were thinking very similarly. I had Boxer, Lhasa mm-hmm. Opsa, Maltese, and Rhodesian Ridgeback. Okay. Ooh, yeah. 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 I a did. Pa- put- a Papillon would not drink beer. Oh, yeah. Papi- oh. Or a Pomeranian. Or a Pomeranian. That's hot. Pomeranian. Pomeranian. Yeah. We actually, oh my gosh, that's a great headwood question. <laughs> what kind of beer? <laughs> no, but they a Pomeranian would would not deign to drink beer. Yes, that's no. that's my thinking. But you never know, Tigger, especially with Hedwig. <laughs> you never know. Okay, <laughs> let's say that clearly. There you go. So that's it. That's that's the uh, that's, that's what the, what dogs are going to drink. What? So uh, we would we would love to hear your suggestions on if dogs were drinking people beverages. What breed of dog would drink your favorite beverage? And please weigh in by heading on over to the Facebook page, which can be found where, Tigger? On Facebook. Oh, my goodness. Healthy Critters. <laughs> Thank you. On Facebook, Healthy Critters. Stop by there. Post what uh, what breed of dog is going to drink your favorite human beverage. And uh, if we get some good ones, we'll par- we will read them out on the show Absolutely. next time. Absolutely. Oh, Perfect. and by the way, do you realize that the three beverages, coffee, red wine, and beer, none of which I drink. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Yeah. So what is your favorite beverage, Tigger? Chocolate milk. And, and if your dog was, a, if there was a breed of dog that was allowed to have chocolate milk, what would it be? Sobby. <laughs> Sorry. That's not a breed of dog. That's just a love. Sorry. I think it would probably be um, a blue healer. Um, yeah. There you go. I can totally see a blue healer. I can see a Shetland sheepdog. Oh, yeah. Sheltie for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. Absolutely. Yes. And, and, t- and Patty, what is your favorite beverage? And maybe a St. Bernard. <laughs> oh, St. Bernard. Yeah. yeah. Um, honestly, between uh, my three top favorite are... Um, Beer, Beer, wine, wine and coffee. And coffee. Coffee, <laughs> coffee, water, and wine. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So it goes like this. Morning, coffee, water, and then wine. <laughs> so. And how about you, Jennifer? Um, everybody, cone of safety, please. Yes. Cone of safety, please. Yes. I love me my daily diet, Dr. Pepper. Ah! Uh, she, said, she said cone, cone of, safety. of safety. And you know who's going to, yeah. you know, what breed of dog drinks diet, diet Dr. Pepper? Oh, let me guess. A corgi. Chinese crested. That's how they got oh, to look that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's well why done. they look that way. Well done. Well done. <laughs> so yeah, let's wrap good. it up, ladies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks to our sponsor, Biostar US. You can find them online at biostarus.com. Get the Horse Radio Network phone app on iOS or Android by searching for Horse Radio Network in the App Store. It's free and easy to use. For details about today's show, go to HealthyCrittersRadio.com where you can find links, photos, and more information about our guests. As always, we love your feedback. Please follow us on Facebook under Healthy Critters Radio.
Be sure to visit all the great shows on Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. Love your dog. Hug your horse. Feed your chickens. Clean your litter box. Dance with your goat. Slither with your snakes. Howl at the moon. Hang with your hamsters. Party with your parrot. Waddle with your walrus. Outwit your otter. Cuddle your cows. Rap with your raptor. Go chipping with your chipmunks. And forgive your fox. While hedging your with your hog. We also recommend that you rack with your raccoon. 